how much how much gets lost because we can't cry you know how much gets lost when we have to assume that that the burden must rest on our shoulders alone what are the costs of a certain kind of hypermasculine pose so for me what does it mean to be a good man um, is a question that i would throw that i would have to revise what does it mean to be a decent human being hey guys Welcome back to another episode. So I'm going to try something different. I always do this uh, preamble before I start the, the show and I just kind of throw in um, a bit of a brief description about the guest that I'm going to have a conversation with and um, just kind of like free wheel and kind of get into the conversation. But I think I'm going to start having more kind of honest chats with you guys just because I feel like my energy is just asking for that to happen. There's something that's just convicting me to just have these conversations with you. I mean, yes, I've got the life edit episodes that happen on Wednesdays um, fortnightly. So the next one that's going to come up is going to be a really good one. I'm um, planning to have a really good discussion around masculinity and masculinities. And it'd be very interesting just to hear it's for all people um, to listen to because it's um, my particular stances about the, the ideas around what that means um especially when it comes to inclusion but what i'm about to say is just it's really interesting um just the timing of things when when these things happen i have been watching the news and i don't really like watching the news um just because it's not it's not helpful for kind of my kind of my spirit and just generally where i'm at in life you know it just means every time I would watch it I always leave the room angry kissing my teeth upset kind of like oh this planet really gets on my nerves and you know I start to really start to really doubt the the nature of humanity and what that means for all of us and when I sat down and I watched like these I want to say white supremacist uh, people uh, storming the the capital in the United States and you know led by their their president talking about um you know kind of really ins- like you know, insurrecting um discontent and getting them to 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 rebel against the state and doing all this stuff it just made me really think about how just on a deeper level we're just not there's something that we're just not connecting with there's something we're not connecting with out here and it's really down to our our collective humanities that are just not there's something that's not aligning and it kind of makes me feel sick you know um i look at the world and i look at how each nation has a particular personality but i've also looked at the world and i'm just thinking about each nation has a particular age now i've been looking at soul ages for a long time and thinking just just been kind of really delving into what that means to have a soul age and where you're at with those soul ages and when I look around the world I look at America sometimes and I just think it's a really young country it's acting as if I wouldn't want to say a child but it's acting very young like like an adolescent like a teenager okay so like a teenager who hasn't found its way yet hasn't found their way yet and 
you know when they rebel they want to go their own way hey you know we've all had those phases as teens we have our we don't want to be told what to do we want to hang out with the with the cool kids we want to you know pave a way for our own things ourselves and i look at it and i just think to myself like america is really really just not ready <laughs> and i don't say not ready as in like you know there's some kind of big deadline or something that needs to be ready for but i'm just looking at it and i'm thinking you're not there's something about it then they're not at uh an age level where they can actually cohesively and coherently lead a country like that country is on the border of civil war like it is it is discontent to the point where i can't even envisage myself going there to visit like this is this is where people live this is where people have made a life for themselves this is where people you know open up their eyes when they're born we don't choose any of this we wake up and we're, we're born and we are thrust into the world and when we're thrust into the world we are thrown into all of these different um conditions and circumstances and we just don't know what that means we could you know this i'm doing a lot of I'm having a lot of conversations with myself and a lot of learning and studying around soul work and you know our souls have chosen us to and chosen the bodies that inhabit the soul right and you know the soul has chosen for us to end up in white skin black skin you know differently abled uh, queer try all of these different things to enact a particular Thing in this world and when you open up your eyes and you're just in this space that is that is crumbling around you your livelihood everything it just kind of makes me just think about the, the nature of where we where we go from here where we go next i have no idea um i know that i as you all know who are listening to me if you're, if you're new here welcome amazing for you to come during this episode where i'm changing things up a little bit but when we look at the at our, at our past and our purposes and where we're, where we're going and i know that i'm in the business of having healing conversations i'm in the business of healing i'm in the business of soul work i'm in the business of when i say business i don't mean from a capitalistic point of view but i'm talking about in what i'm concerned with um i'm concerned with the healing of people i'm, I'm concerned with us moving from emotional stunting to emotional awareness i'm from i'm in the school of thought that we all have a trauma or something that we need to work through and overcome and move through you know so that is where i'm at with it it just made me feel discontent and when i look around and here in the uk for any of the uk listeners anybody who's remotely interested in what's going on over here um we see the government have an assault have a blatant assault on the poor um and the lower income people and i don't even like using the word poor it's just the word that came to my mind because that's the word that's been conditioned and been programmed into me to 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 use but i want to say lower income and i don't even want to say disadvantage it's just like lower income people um with the government you know paying for those of you don't know it's um the we're on lockdown in this country and there's no kids going back to school 
um, and a lot and a vast majority of the country cannot afford to eat. So the government has had commissioned a company, I think they were called Chartwells, and uh, to provide uh, meals to families for five days uh, worth £30 um, a week. So they provide shopping and they send it and they, they hand it to these families who are on this particular scheme. And some of the images that are going around on the internet are absurd. The pictures that these parents, uh, predominantly mothers, are taking pictures of the food that was given to them. And it, and the government and these companies are saying that it's, that's worth £30. When you look at it, you think to yourself, that is not worth £30. You know what's worth £30. You know you can go out and you can sit down and you, can, and you go to the shop. You know if you have £30, that will do you for a week. Typically, if you need to buy on a budget, £30 will get you enough food. Probably won't get you the best quality brands. It probably won't get you um, so many treats or things that you probably don't need. But if you needed the, the basics, if you needed the pastas, breads, tinned foods, um, you know, complex carbs, if you needed some protein, if you needed those things, you could get that on £30 and you could kind of budget that for the week and do that. But the food that these people were getting were not even... It wasn't enough and it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. It's still heartbreaking to see. It took Marcus Rashford, football player in the UK, to tweet and speak to the Prime Minister to get that rectified because he's been campaigning for um, for a while, um, since the beginning of COVID really, about uh, school dinners and kind of making sure that kids get to eat because when you're from a lower income family it's not always possible to be able to, to eat like you know and, and there's a city in the UK called Manchester and I was watching the news again and it was they were talking about um, food banks and homeless shelters and um, there was one woman on there and she said you know it's a choice of whether I pay my mortgage or I eat and you know she was like I have to pay my mortgage I don't want to be homeless but I I'm hungry. So all of these different things that's going on in the country because of COVID, because of Brexit that's happening, all of these different things. And it's just a lot. And it made me just really think about the kind of things that I want to be doing and kind of the way I want to be showing up in the world and how I want to show up in the world and why I want to show up in the way I do. And it does, you know, bring me onto this week's guest. And so, you know, like... As you know, I, I love to have these conversations. I want to make a difference. I want to make a change. And I think that I, if I come away from there with learning things, with nuggets, I just hope and hope that you come away and you hear uh, what I hear or hear something different. And then tell me. I love when you guys message me um, when you hear something. So that leads me on to this week's guest. I've got uh, an amazing conversation and it's with... Uh, Eddie S. Gloud Jr. And so Eddie is amazing. Eddie's fantastic. Like, just, I was blown away by this whole conversation that we had. Um, Eddie's the author of a book called Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Today. I came across Eddie last year um, and I saw a video of him on I think he was in it. He was a, he's been a commentator. He's an academic. He's a professor. He he's a professor and he works at I want to say hmm, oh he's at Princeton University and um, 
and he teaches there. And um, looking at that clip where he was saying um, America is going to have to learn again and again and again. We're going to. I'm, I'm paraphrasing exactly what he said, but he basically is saying like after all the Black Lives Matter president with everything that happened in July and um, I think it was June, July over last summer anyway and he was like America is going to have to feel these lessons again and again and again because we're not learning the lessons again and again and again and he's like we have to begin again because we're, we're we're predicated on fear, on pain on trauma, on destruction and all these different things and if we begin again we can create a future there's a theme <laughs> building for the episodes that I'm coming through, coming from for these past two episodes, and um, about building legacy <laughs> and rebuilding the future. I don't know where it's come from. It's just it just feels really synergistic. I definitely made that word up. Um, but yeah, we know Eddie and I. We speak about James Baldwin. We speak about the lessons that James Baldwin um, left in his legacy. And the things that we can learn from him and how we can make the world better. He is obviously speaking from an American-centric point of view because he is American. Um, but we do nod about across the different things that happen across the Atlantic. And it's fantastic. It's an amazing episode. I really enjoyed doing this episode. So, as ever... Please rate, review, and subscribe. And do share the episode where you can. And guys, comment with me. Connect with me. Engage with me on Instagram. Listen, I'm there to be engaged with. Um, drop me messages if you like what, what is being said. If you don't like what's being said. If you have any suggestions for guests, tell me who you want to hear from. Tell me what you want to hear. Like, just drop me a message. Also, go to iTunes. <laughs> I have to do this thing. Go to Apple Podcasts and rate review um, um, on there. Just leave me a review. Because the more I get seen, the more uh, people I can get on. And we've got an amazing roster of guests coming this year. Um, so, but the more we can get, and um, the better. And we need these conversations for today. We need these conversations it's taken me so long to get to a stage where I know the kind of conversations I want to have and we need these conversations. Um, so, without further ado, Eddie Escalade Jr., welcome to Time to Talk. Welcome to Time to Talk, Eddie. Thank you so much for joining me. It is my pleasure. I'm excited about the conversation. So you're my first recording for 2021, so I put that in um the bracket of start as we mean to go on um there's no no pressure there but but, uh, um i'm looking forward to this conversation so thank you so much thank you i wanted to start with just congratulations on the book um i hear that it has been doing um amazingly on the new york times bestseller list so far um but before we get into that uh, the book is begin again james baldwin's america and its urgent lessons for today before we get into that, though, I wanted to ask a question around what memory do you have of your childhood that, that you hold on to today? What memory do I have from my childhood that I hold on to today? Oh, they're, they vary. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I suppose the the most the most recent memory because I've been writing about it is is you know um, being afraid of my dad you know having these scary encounters with him um, mm-hmm. and that varies from time to time you know it's the kind of the flitting memory of of a stare of of a kind of glare that would freeze me mm-hmm. in place. Um, so in some ways, the memories have been kind of jumbled together as I try to untangle trauma in my own life as I write. Um, mm-hmm. So alongside that, I suppose, given that we just came out of the Christmas holidays, um, was that my mother my mother loved Christmas and we would have these amazing uh things on Christmas Eve, she would cook a pot of gumbo and mm-hmm. we would all open a present or two and it would yeah. just be wonderful. So those are the kind of two things that would converge. And my dad would always act ignorant, ignorantly on Christmas, <laughs> during the Christmas holidays. So. Yeah. <laughs> Was it hard kind of picking apart some of the things that, some of the topics in the book when it came to the memories of your, of your father? You know, in, in some ways it, I had to do it. Baldwin insisted that I do it. And it, it, in order for me to, to, to have an authentic voice on the page, I had to be honest with myself. Um, and Baldwin believes um, in the Socratic dictum that the unexamined life is not worth living. And so there's this demand that I, I knew about, but I didn't, and this is why I was kind of hesitant to write about him or to write with him, was that I knew he was going to ask something of me that I, I that I wasn't sure I was willing to answer, but I, as I was writing, I knew I had to to deal with the fact that I'm a vulnerable little boy, mm-hmm. and my dad deposited fear in my gut from an early age, and that I had to grapple with that. I had to confront that in order for my voice to be heard on the page. Otherwise, I would find myself just simply trying to imitate his sentences or trying to imitate Baldwin's voice as opposed to my own. And so the book is the book is in some ways a result of that confrontation, of that willingness on my part yeah. uh, to look um, those experiences with my father squarely in the face. Now, mind you, me and my dad are really close today, but okay. that's, a, that's a journey. That was a journey. It took a journey to get there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what was that becoming? Was it a, was it you growing into... Um, growing into an adult man, was it then you becoming a father that just built that connection up with you and your dad? Or yeah, well, you know, I think it's 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 a couple of things. You know, so my my dad and my mom were basically children raising children. They were young. Um, he had four kids, um, one of whom was severely handicapped, and my mother had me. I was the last one, and she was barely twenty one. Oh wow! Okay, you see what I mean? Yeah. So so. Yeah. Um, they were they were growing up with us in some ways, um, and you know he you know I grew up on the coast of Mississippi, Alex, and so there there, and my family, my dad's side of the family is light skin, green yeah. eyes, and he's my color. Okay. So he grew up with colorism in his family. So I remember coming home from college. I went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, and and I went home to. Uh, my mother insisted that I come home because she saw it, saw the relationship had deteriorated in so many ways. And um, he'd started telling me a story before I could even open my mouth. And yeah. it was in some ways an account of his trauma, you know, 
asking his dad, why am I so dark compared to others? And his dad telling him that I found you in the garbage can or something like that. So um, basically, I, you know, the short answer to your question is that I I came to understand him better. So my judgment was less, less exacting. I came to see that, you know, here's a man who got up every morning uh, and went to work, fixed the same sandwich every day either a bologna sandwich with mustard and mayonnaise or a ham sandwich with mustard and mayonnaise every single day and delivered mail. And then when he saw that he had precocious kids, took a second job. Okay. You know, but he couldn't express love, right, in a a, a very – outside of just being responsible. And so, like Jimmy, if you read Baldwin closely, he's very – his judgment of his stepfather is exacting in the early days. You read Notes of a Native Son – I mean, it's devastating. But by the time you get to the last, the latter years, Baldwin understands his father. So it's understands his stepfather much better. So it's mm-hmm. it's a little bit of maturity. It's also growth in the relationship, being open to to um, to growing with someone. And yeah. now you know he's telling me what to say on television. It's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> there is that kind of there's that conversation that a lot of men have. Um, with their fathers it's this ideal to have somebody lead them as they grow older and there's that gap and then there's this kind of coming back together as um, as they age and it's usually through just life experiences or um, fatherhood or to some some sort of some sort of connection that we that that you then have with um, with your father because there are there are things that you're learning I'm currently watching The Crown Mm-hmm. on um on netflix and just it's just funny that we see these these patterns and these 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 tropes that just happen among men with right. prince philip and prince charles and him wanting to go to a school that he went to and like he's just frustrated at the fact that um they're not as close and he was sold by his uncle before that you know as he grows older and he becomes a father he's gonna he's gonna be seeking that forgiveness of being a father um to, to form for like from Charles as well but what lessons there have did you learn about you becoming a parent yourself and um kind of because there's this whole thing about I wouldn't want to do the same things that my father yeah. kind of did to me I don't want to I don't want my children to to fear me I don't want my children to kind of dislike me and um yeah. when we then have kids it becomes this next thing where uh, I don't have children but it's an, it's an anticipation for me because I'm just like, oh, if I was to have children, would I want them to be scared of me? Am I going to carry on the same things that I've been taught? What you know, some of I, the lessons? You know, oh, if my son could tell stories, if he ever writes a book. I mean, I had, <laughs> I had, I had this ideal of what kind of father I was going to be. And, um, but then I only had what I, what I, what I had. And I found myself sounding exactly like the man that I loathed. You know, I found myself duplicating the very things that he did um, yeah. in my own way. You know, even though I may be at the the height of my career, um, you know, teaching at Princeton and and all of this stuff. You know, I work. I was raised a working class black man in the, in the South, mm-hmm. and trying to instill in my son. Uh, what my father put in me, but he didn't do it right. You know, th- you know, 
my brother and my sister and I, we always say that the world can't really shake us because we grew up in Eddie Glaude Sr.'s house, right? So there's nothing really that the world can throw at us that's going to take us off our square. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and my father used to say all the time, I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to prepare you for the world that doesn't like you. And so I wanted to give my son that kind of resolve. And it's very different because, you know, he was growing up in a, in a, in a you know, his godfather's Cornell West. And, you know, oh, wow. he, you know he's growing up in, a, in you know, in, in this environment where there are nothing but books and scholars and, and resources, right? Um, yeah. But I found myself doing the exact same thing, you know, and um, horrified by what I was doing and, you know, telling him, unlike my dad with me, telling him all the time that I loved him to death, but scaring him, you know? Mm. And uh, Mm. we wrote a piece together for Time Magazine once. Um, I wrote a piece. It it was actually performed in Britain. Okay. Um, And I wrote a piece uh, responding to, um, uh, you know, one of the police murders and worrying about him. And he responded. And let me know that he had been listening, but it took a while, you know, mm. it took, it took a minute. So, you know, we're, we're fallen, fragile creatures and we fail, but you know, like Samuel Beckett says, you know, fail, fail again, fail better. So. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Um, I think that heading into this conversation, um, I said, I love Baldwin I think that I think that in reading the book Begin Again I navigated some of the same things that you did and I went and there were things that I identified with when you spoke about um not having read him not having really read him right <laughs> like you were aware of who he was right. and um cuz the one thing I, I found about Baldwin before I sat down and read um, "Go Tell It on the Mountain" uh, for, the, for like the, my, the first time, I started really getting into African American literature. Toni Morrison's "Song of Solomon" and then "Go Tell It on the Mountain" seemed like seemed like the sensible choice to come next. And um, I was frightened of him. Yeah, he had a power within him and the way that he writes. But I wanted to hear your story around your discovering him like really discovering him and discovering his words in his text yeah you know it was uh you know i had encountered baldwin obviously in in undergrad i didn't read him when i was in high school you know i went to school mississippi's um education system is one of the worst if not the worst in in the united states and i was in one of the worst school districts in the United, in, in the state of Mississippi. So um, I didn't encounter him until, um, seriously, I didn't encounter him until graduate school. And as I write in the book, I, I was hesitant because when, you know, Baldwin's prose, uh, particularly his nonfiction, made everyone uncomfortable. And, you know, I had to confront, you know, flushed faces, red cheeks, you know, white guilt. And then I found myself having to navigate that in, in, in the uh, seminar rooms. And I didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. So I found myself in those early days gravitating to, to Ralph Ellison. So I was reading all of Ellison's nonfiction, you know, Shadow and Act and Going to the Territory and, and you know, 
uh, writing my essays on Ellison because as I write in the book, you know, his mask fit perfectly. There was an elegance to his pose. There was yeah. a kind of philosophical rigor to the essay. Baldwin, Baldwin's was scorched earth. Right? It was the, it was it was Jeremiah. It's just kind of this prophetic yeah. voice. And so it wasn't really until the last, uh, my last years in graduate school and my first year of teaching, I taught the fire next time. And um, my God, having to teach it and teaching it, you know, I would teach it right after teaching Toni Morrison's Beloved. And I would do that because Toni said, you know, in, in her eulogy with regard, you know, eulogy of Baldwin, that she found language in Baldwin's prose. So I was reading Jimmy differently, and then to have to teach him to students, and 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 so sitting into sitting in the language, and then boom, from that moment on, you know, it's almost thirty years ago. From that moment on, um, I, I, I taught Baldwin every year, mm-hmm. and then I started pairing Baldwin, pairing you know, Fire Next Time with No Name in the Street a book that folks don't typically read. And, oh my goodness. It's is that just, his last book? Yeah, it's not the last book. It's, you know, the last book is The Evidence of Things Not Seen, right. which is about the Atlanta child murders. But this is a book published in 1972, and, it, and that book is the spine of Begin Again. It's the first book published after Dr. King's murder. And so, it was that encounter in the classroom of having to... Uh, uh, having to expose students to the depth of Baldwin's prose, not to just not to get beyond just simply the emotional and visceral reaction, but to see what is he doing with the genre of the essay. How do we understand these sentences? What is the relationship between the way in which he's crafting this sentence and how he's reading Henry James? What is the way in which the King James Bible is informing this? How is this in the tradition of Emerson? In other words. I started delving into Baldwin's bibliography in order to understand him. And boom, the world opened up. Mm. Right? It wasn't just Jeremiah. It was so much more. And I've been reading him. Uh, I've been an avid Baldwin reader uh, ever since. You know, an avid Baldwin reader. I actually don't like this question I'm going to ask, but I'm going to ask <laughs> it anyway. <laughs> um, so what's your favorite Baldwin piece of work? Oh, Lord. Here's a word from our partners this year. This year, my intention was to work closely with businesses who were doing their very best to enhance our wellness and keep us in the best shape, especially since we are in this damn lockdown again. When I endeavoured to find some, I didn't have to look too far as they'd been around me for a very long time. So the first sponsor I want to introduce is Herbie Box. I am a tea fiend. I'm currently drinking one of their teas right now, and I love tea, um, and I love herbal teas. But the guys over at Herbie Box have shared with me a discount code for you, Time to Talk listeners, to get 10% off of your one-time purchases on their two boxes, Immune and Athene. So, a brief bit about their Immune box. So, Immune is their signature seven-day booster herbal blend. It nourishes the body, promotes calm, and helps increase the body's natural defenses. So if you love aromatic tasting teas, this blend is for you. Find out why so many immune reviews mention more energy, more sleep, more calm, better digestion, and general feelings of well-being. Their Athene box is for the brain. So this one is a lot more to do with focus, 
to do with energy, to do with power, to do with mood. And it just gives you a bit more sharpness and a way to relax. So these are some of the reasons why people love Athene as well. It kind of gives them an energy boost. They are specially crafted herb vials, which you get seven in a box. And Herbie Box have created this community event called a Herbie Week, where you take the seven herbs in the vial and you just drink them throughout the week. And it's a way to reset and rejuvenate the body outside of the month because you know a lot of the time we forget about what we're what we're ingesting and a lot of the stress that we have we kind of put away and it kind of goes into different parts of the body so it's good to have something that helps heal the inside as well as us kind of focusing on our external especially in this new year everyone's going to be wanting to get fit get better do all that stuff but we need to really focus on what's going inside us Okay, so if you want 10% off of your one time purchase at Herbie Box, head over to herbiebox.com. That's H E R B Y box.com. And at checkout, use discount code Alex Holmes 10. So that's Alex Holmes 10. And tell them I sent you, and trust me, you won't go wrong with your seven day herbal blend. This episode is also brought to you by Beardfluence. All right, so we are in a lockdown. But your beard doesn't have to be. <laughs> More time, I have been looking patchy patchy, especially in the very first lockdown that we had last year. But this doesn't have to be the fate of your lockdown buddy, your male friend or family member, as Beardfluence is offering you 15% off site-wide when you use the code time to talk 2021 So that's time to talk 2021 That's 15% off of their Kensington set, which is inclusive of a Bore bristle brush, comb and scissors. Everything comes gift wrapped as a gift to yourself or to someone else. And a little bit about Beardfluence is that it's a high performance beard care brand focused on targeted treatments such as promoting better growth and helping conditioning. Their flagship product is the Beardfluence Night Oil and is powered by the scent of sandalwood, growth promoting castor and peppermint oil and hemp seed oil which helps resolve beard itching. So all you have to do is go to their Instagram at HQ and have a look at the rave reviews to know that it is good for you, your man and your entanglement. But we don't promote entanglements on this show. We don't do that. So what I'm going to say is that you have to get detangled and get detangled with Beardfluence. Let them know I sent you. So let's get on with the show. I actually don't like this question I'm going to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> um, so what's your favourite Baldwin piece of work? Oh, Lord. It all depends <laughs> on which day you ask me, right? It all depends okay. on which day you ask me. Today it will be uh, No Name in the Street. No Name in the Street. Okay. I've I've been meditating on the fire next time, and mm. I was meditating on the fire next time for the whole of 2020. And... Um, it seemed like a fitting time to have the fire next time with us. Why, where are we, where are we at with regards to kind of what Bolden was saying in the fire next time? How do we begin again with regards to yeah. what you're, with what you're saying? Yeah. You know, I mean, there's this line, uh, that, um, in, in the fire next time, that is, at, mm-hmm. in some ways, at the core of 
of one of the arguments in Begin Again. And it's on, it's, you know, he, he says, and I'll read the passage, the American Negro has the great advantage of having never believed that collection of myths to which white Americans cling. That their ancestors were all freedom-loving heroes, that they were born in the greatest country the world has ever seen, or that Americans are invincible in battle and wise in peace, that Americans have always dealt honorably with Mexicans and Indians and all other neighbors or inferiors, that American men and all, you know, are the world's most direct and virile, that American women are pure. Negroes know far more about white Americans than that. It can almost be said, in fact, that they know about white Americans what parents know about their children and that they very often regard white Americans that way. So this passage is in some ways the key to how I think about the lie, right? Mm. That the lie has been at the heart of America's self-conception. This has been at the heart of the West's self-conception in some ways, right? And so part of what I think where we are now is this refusal to confront it. And in the United States, as well as in the U.K., Right. There's a reassertion of the lie in the face of right, fundamental changes in how the society uh, uh, functions. Right? We have these demographic shifts in the United States that fundamentally challenge this conception that America is a white nation in the vein of old Europe. And then there's this sense in which, you know, there's this romance, this nostalgic longing for, for a Britain of old. And you know what that means in its details, right? And so part of what I think Baldwin insisted upon is this kind of refusal of the safety of so-called innocence. Innocence for Baldwin is, you know, to be stuck in perpetual innocence is, is dangerous, right? It actually makes you monstrous. And so he says, if we're to be mature, mm-hmm. we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to look the ghastliness of our failures in the face. That opens up the space for us to be otherwise. Just as I had to be honest with the wound in me in order to write on, in order to get to the page, just as my father and I had to be honest about the brokenness between the two of us in order to open up the possibility for us to be otherwise, these countries, the West, has to be honest about itself to stop lying about what it has done and what it continues to do in the name of its so-called freedoms, in the name of its so-called commitments, mm-hmm. and really open up the space for it to be otherwise. And that's Jimmy's honesty, man, his insightful vision. Um, it, it's not burdened with any kind of you know, ideology in any thick sense. It is the sound of an artist, of a prophetic witness, so... Yeah, that's what yeah. that's what I take to be the, the lesson. Talk to me some more about honesty. Um, yeah. How how do we get to a point where we can we can readily share this these honest truths about ourselves and our histories and where we're at? Well, you know, in, in our intimate relationships, it it requires you know. Um, a sense of trust, a willingness to be vulnerable with another, mm-hmm. right? To tell the truth, you know? Sometimes you got to lie, though. We got to be clear about that. There's this wonderful, um, there's this extraordinarily powerful exchange between Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni that circulates on uh, on YouTube. And, and Nikki yeah. Giovanni is like, you know, you go out and lie to the man and then you come home and you beat up on me. Lie to me. And Baldwin is confused. Yep. He doesn't know what to do. 
to how to respond to it. I can't lie to you, he says. But, you know, sometimes we have to, in the name of love, not reveal some of the things that we do. Uh, but that's a different sort of, 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 of issue. I think the question that you're asking is um, a, a very, very insightful one. And, and that is a penetrating question. Sometimes the preconditions for honesty is, is trust. Sometimes the precondition for honesty is our own liberation. You know, black folk in the United States, I can't speak to the particulars of Britain, but black folk in the United States often find ourselves, we often find ourselves wearing the mask, not being honest, because we know what it would trigger. And in, in doing so, we, we become complicit, right, in the very arrangements themselves. So we just got to tell the truth about this. We can't, we can't. We can't dance any longer. And, and so that doesn't require trust. That just requires a faith in ourselves, in our own voice. So if we embrace a notion of our own self-determination, of our own freedom, we have to tell the truth about the hell we're catching. We can't dance around it. Mm. Um, so, you know, those two different ways in which being honest uh, can manifest itself, right? Yeah. If that makes sense. So I want, that does make sense. And I want to go to, I want to go to different ways with this. And so I'm going to, but the first way I'm going to go is your position as an academic and somebody who kind of is, is, is in, is confronting um, a lot of these truths mm. and doing that. Like how does, how difficult or easy was it to become more, more and more honest with what you're seeing and then translating that as a way of teaching and enlightening your students and the people around you? You know, it's a, um, it's an interesting question. I'm a student of Cornell West. Um, he was my dissertation advisor, along with Jeffrey Stout and Albert Rabbit. Right, okay. And you know, he was a model for me. Um, of course, I, yeah. I came out of I come out of my political lineage. I come out of a black nationalist tradition, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so there's always been this sense of of um, a deep-seated skepticism about the American project that has been tempered over the years as I've gotten older. But I think um, I just, at the heart of the question, let me see, at the heart of the answer to the question is, is a refusal. I refuse to take the bribe. And the bribe is this, it seems to me, um, and that is a kind of uh, a temptation to just assume a level of comfort within uh, the current set of arrangements. So if I'm a scholar, I could just simply write about, uh, you know, obscure professional things and teach these obscure professional things to my students um, and, 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 and be rewarded for, for, for excellence in that area. Yeah. You know, but uh, I decided to, to imagine myself in, in, in broader, more expansive terms and so that called into question, right, whether or not I would be, you know, how, would, how does one get tenure? How does one acquire these platforms in order to say these sorts of things that one says? Um, and I just, I've just resisted over the course of my career the temptation to, to just simply reconcile myself to the status quo and combine that with uh, an, an absolute love for ideas, um, you know, um, and and a bit of luck and, and grace. Mm-hmm. 
I did want to push on the 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 conversation of the Nikki Giovanni, and I'm so happy that you brought that up because I completely forgot about that. I remember reading it before I'd even before I'd even before I even watch or hear any a lot of these things. I'm reading them, so right. I'm reading. I read the I bought I bought the last interview collection, and it had him speaking with Nikki Giovanni, right. and um, I remember reading that when I was 23. I used to be like, I was like, oh, okay. But I, but again, it's like, it's like as you said earlier about reading things closely, and as you grow older and you start read it closely and you, and you read it differently, and you're like, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I hear yeah, you saying. Yeah. Then it went out of my mind, and then I, and then the, and then I found that there were the videos on YouTube, and then they had to kind of, um, they started circulating, um, especially last year, they were circulating a lot. Lie to me when you come home what pressure do we have to be under in order for us to come home and be so honest but also wanting to lie or needing to lie in order to protect people around us you know I wish I had the answer you know and one of the dangers of you know of this of this business is mm. you know the presumption that you know you know these things right mm-hmm. and so what i do know is that human beings particularly black human beings people who inhabit these particular sorts of bodies that we catch hell out here that even when we are uh, at the height of our professions we're still catching hell out here yeah. and trying to hold uh, ourselves together to 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 avoid you know the the anger just you know seeping outside of the lid you know the the the, the rage evidencing itself we're constantly engaging in this work um to 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 manage uh the volatile emotions that that are part of what it means to navigate the world a world that is organized in such a way that mm. disregards us and so there's a sense in which um, you can bring that you can you can bring that shit home, and you can cause damage. I can imagine my father going back to where we began. He's 21 years old with four kids, trying to figure out how he's going to put food on the table. Second African American hired at the post office in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and having to deal with white folks who don't think he's competent. And my father has an extraordinary temper and trying to make daily decisions. Do I go to jail today and leave my children starving or do I suck this up? And then he comes home and he's silent. Doesn't say a word. That's one of the strangest elements of my memory of my childhood is how quiet the house was. And then how volatile it would become. Right. He would go from you know, silence to, to a kind of scream that would, you know, make you shut out on the inside. So what does it mean then to, to, to be able to be vulnerable enough when you come home in the face of what you've just experienced and to be vulnerable enough in such a way that you're t- attentive to the other person in your life? Because in some ways, that's what it all, that's what Nick Giovanni is trying to say to Jimmy at that moment. 
When you read, when you read Baldwin's letters, for example, to his brother David, um, Ed Pavlik has, has this wonderful new book, if it ever gets published, about the, the letters between the two brothers. And David is Baldwin's closest friend. But when you read the letters, you, you long, Alex, for, for David's voice. Because Baldwin is just asking, 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 pulling. And you said, damn it, Baldwin seems so narcissistic that his demand for honesty oftentimes makes it feel like, at least because you don't hear David's voice, makes, it, makes you feel like Baldwin is just concerned about himself, that he's not thinking about mom, his mother. He's not thinking about, although he was, right? This sort of thing. So when, when Nikki Giovanni says to Jimmy, lie to me, she's like, be concerned about me. You can't tell me that. Mm. You can't. Why would you do that? What is? What are you doing? Why would you break my heart in that way? Sometimes when you love someone deeply, right, it is out of that love that you don't expose them to the monstrosity that you are. <laughs> I know that's that sounds that's crazy, but I think that's true. Absolutely not crazy at all. <laughs> absolutely not crazy at all and I, I get that when we think of Baldwin when we think of Baldwin because I remember because even looking at that um, watching that I think I'm, I'm just visually back yeah, watching, yeah. That, watching that now <laughs> and I remember his face was like what do you mean <laughs> like I can't lie to you right? I can't lie to you and because it was because his whole if we're, if we're talking in 2021 2020 terms his whole brand was honesty like everywhere every interview every word he placed was a scathing um revelation and like the realities of life and 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 his own experience like i would be frightened to sit down in front of him and say lie to me i'll be scared myself i'll be i'll be frightened so to see his face kind of like in that shock of like him asking what do you mean that level of vulnerability was it was powerful because it was like yeah you know he went back after and was like wow actually yeah and the thing is that it shows you the generosity of baldwin too you know nikki giovanni Mm. was an up-and-coming poet at the time and 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 here here's baldwin this giant and he's 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 listening he's taking it in and let me be clear baldwin is not i don't think nikki giovanni is actually asking him to to lie to her about who he is. Mm. That's not what we mean. We do monstrous things, even though we yeah. are, we're not monsters. We can do monstrous things. And so what she's saying to him is that black women have had to bear the burden of the hell that black men catch in the world. You dance, you shuck and jive out there, and then you come and pop me upside my head. Throw me across the room. You're lying out there. You're wearing the mask out there. And then you come and take it out on me. Lie to me. And what she's saying to me is, at least how I'm reading that moment, is what does it mean to keep me in view, to bring me into view? And that is not to say, not, not just simply to be so consumed with your pain that, that I have to bear the burden of it. But what does it mean in relation to your pain to keep me in view? to keep the people you love in view, then maybe, maybe, you know, daddy wouldn't have been so so harsh with us. You know? If he yeah. kept if, so even in the midst of 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 the hustle, of the grind, right? 
You got what that love requires of you, it seems to me, is an ongoing attentiveness, an ongoing tending uh, to those for whom uh, you would give your life. Yeah. What does it mean to you to be a, a good man? It's a, I've been reading a lot around masculinity and masculinities and I, what you've said about, you know, you take, you put your mask on out in the world and you come home and take it out. And a lot of men take it out on the women or the people they love in their homes. And um, as a black man, as a man in general, how do we, like coming up, myself coming up into into the world and kind of building a platform and a voice for myself in this space and how do we genuinely become good men you know it's a it's i've never been asked that question before and my, my initial reaction is you know what it means to be a, a, a good man means what it you know is is just another way of asking what does it mean to be a decent and good person right what does it mean to live a life that is animated by love that's animated by responsibility and decency, right? To 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 leave behind, you know, um, all of these, um, all of these assumptions about what it means to be a man, right? That's that we can't show vulnerability, right? That you know how much how much gets lost because we can't cry, at least in a certain under certain you know. How much gets lost when we have to assume that that the burden must rest on our shoulders alone? Um, what are the cost of a certain kind of hypermasculine pose? Right, so, for me, what does it mean to be a good man? Um, is a question that I would throw that I would have to revise. What does it mean to be a decent human being? Mm. Right, and I think that has everything to do with living a life of love. Right? Being responsible um, to yourself and to others. And a willingness, I think, a willingness to confront the fact um, that, you know, we're all broken, fragile, you know, fallen, vulnerable creatures. Or to put it as my mother would put it on, in, on the coast of Mississippi, this working class black woman, to realize that... Uh, uh, my shit stank just like everybody else's. <laughs> <laughs> to put it just, <laughs> you can edit that out, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, no, wait, no, that that will stay. <laughs> um, I asked because I recently read a piece that my friend sent me, and it was kind of looking at the status of the good man. And um, it kind of, it, it, it used Barack Obama as a critical um, experience in, in the piece. It was talking about how he upheld um, capitalistic and patriarchal mm-hmm. identity and views. And, you know, and a lot of the conversations we have around... Um, around being good men tend to exclude you know queer men mm-hmm. it really excludes um trans men it excludes the non-binary 
And um, it also excludes the responsibility to protecting women and children. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it did make me think a lot about where... We, like where that whole idea comes from and if we're kind of relating it back to James Baldwin when we have him here as a, as, as a prolific speaker writer voice of, of the time and then we have him next to in the like when I'm, when I'm reading have him next to the Stokely Carmichael and the Kwame Toure's the Malcolm X's his friends the Elijah Muhammad's the Martin yeah. Luther King's it somehow feels as if he was on a back foot, in a sense, because of his sexuality and because of and because of that. It feels like he was. It feels like yes, he had validity and he had kind of like assertion and he had the energy that went with him, but there was just something. Yeah, that was just like, that was just like wait a minute. So, you know, it was. It did. Am I making sense? No, absolutely, absolutely. Right, okay. When I interviewed Angela Davis for the book, um, she talked about how, 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 how many, how many times Baldwin was out there all by himself. I mean, just think about it, man. You 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 publish your first novel, it's Go Tell It on the Mountain, and you know the publishing industry is just very clear. You know, you hit you hit with that one, you're gonna write another one that is probably in the same. They want to they want to box you in, and then Baldwin drops Giovanni's Room, right. A book that people say is about same-sex love, and Jimmy says it's about love. It just happens to be between two, <laughs> right? It's about yeah. love, right? Two men, right? So, so what, 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 what Baldwin, and then Baldwin says, you know, you can't hold my sexuality over my head. I told you, mm. right? So he's out there all by himself in so mm. many ways, and 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 Angela Davis was saying this as a queer woman, right? Who 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 experienced what she experienced. Uh, and witnessed Baldwin, right, in this way. But, you know, there's this, you know, you know, Bayard, someone just someone just yesterday text, you know, sent me an email asking me about King's response to Jimmy as opposed to Bayard Rustin, who was also queer or gay. Mm. And and I was like, the fact is that Baldwin was out. You know, he, he wasn't closeted, you know. He resisted these categories that tried to box him in. In some ways, he you know, Calling him gay or que- isn't quite right, you know. Our language of non-binary. Yeah. He, what are his pronouns? You know, I think we have a language that Baldwin was always was always already pointing us toward. Now, he was trying to inhabit that then, um, yeah. but then at the same time, Alex, you know, there's this story. He's at um, this Black Panther event in California, and you know somebody's doing some gunplay, and then they have an epileptic fit. They have a seizure, and the guy starts shooting, and Betty Shabazz is there with her children on stage. And when the gunshots rang out, everybody runs. But, you know, Baldwin, who's so fragile, and you know, screams, the babies, and he runs and covers them. So in the midst of this hyper-masculine performance, when gunshots ring and people break, what does, the bald, what does Baldwin do? goes and puts his body over those babies man um so i think there's you're absolutely right that he stands at a he's constantly querying black politics he's constantly right querying a certain notion of black masculinity he he Mm. is always misfitted and it's from that perch that he offers the most searing criticism of the west it seems to me
Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's true. But um, that's really interesting about, you know, by saving the babies. Yeah. Because it's, cause it, 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 it's that... It's, it's, it's those kind of um, actions that people hold high, but they don't necessarily... We don't necessarily bear witness to those things, you know? It's like... Yes, like we could talk about. Yes, he went and you know, he went to protect the children. Like that was such an amazing, caring man. But in the moment, that's not what the men do. And I and I just and this is where when it comes to those questions yeah. around being a good man, I'm just always looking at it and just thinking this blueprint that we've been given to be men. Um, you know, from me coming up from 1991 to now and just like looking at it and thinking, wait, none of this makes, this does, so yeah. the, most of this stuff does not fit. So yeah. I look to people like yourself and to Baldwin and to the, the writers before me and a lot of those, a lot of those people. And I see that there are there, but they're just so few in the, in the main, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's important that maybe we might need to change the noun in the question. Right. It's not 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 is yeah. not that what does it mean to be good men, but what does it mean to be good? Good. Be good people. Yeah. Period. Yeah. So tell me about going to see his home. <laughs> um, that was actually yeah, think about going to see his home. That whole, that whole that is, experience. It was dope. That it whole experience was, was something. It was dope. But... I was in, I was in Heidelberg, and you know, yeah. uh, I was it's in Germany, right? Yeah, yeah, I was in Heidelberg, Germany, and I, and I took a flight to Nice, and uh, it's supposed to be like a, a day, you know, a, a, an overnight trip, and so I was going to fly into Nice, and I was just going to go catch catch a catch a cab and 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 go into Saint Paul de Vence and. And just see it, because I knew they were tearing it down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't, I didn't know that there was this national dance party that France has. And, you know, I was like, what the <laughs> hell is this? And this guy who was my taxi, I told him that, you know, what I was doing. And, you know, he wanted to practice his English with me, I suppose. And, and um, I said, you know, I want to go to St. Paul de Vence. He said, you must go now, uh, because France is going to be locked down. You know, and it was during the World Cup, too. And that's yeah. the year that France won the World Cup. So every, all, everybody was, like, locked in. And yeah. so um, when I saw it, you know, I, I was stunned. You know, it looked like an archaeological site. The, the, the portion of the house that was still there, the side of the wall was beaten by sun. Um, there were plows and all sorts of construction equipment all around. And um, there was a sign that, that said, you know, this was going to be, you know, the site of luxury apartments with the panoramic view. Because just above wow. my head was the city of St. Paul de Vence. It's a gorgeous spot. I could imagine Baldwin waking up after, you know, around 12 o'clock at, or 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon after a night of drinking and riot, writing, lighting a cigarette, pouring himself a cup of coffee and looking out. I mean, it's stunning. You know, the idea that capitalism had got him, that the place that he called home, that the place that, that, that held the welcome table was now going to be the site of luxury, you know, condos. Uh, mm. It was just this um, kind of sad moment. 
So I went back to Nice and drank myself into a stupor. <laughs> yeah. A part of me just been really thinking about when it comes to like these homes, how how long they can be preserved in history until they just become a memory. Yeah. You know? Um it's not like I don't know whether it could have been passed down to anybody or anything. But when you when I saw that, I was like, Oh, so I will never get to see it. Like <laughs> I will never get to see it. Like yeah. we are we are we are I don't even know if we are gonna go into a lockdown at this point, um, in time in the UK and um at the point of when you went to see it, it was being it was half you know, demolished already. I guess they said they they're going to keep. They, were... they said they're going to keep that part of it, but you, I can only imagine <laughs> what it will look like surrounded yeah. by all of these these folk. And then you know they thought you know it was fascinating because my my cab driver looked like he was you know this muscular guy from New Jersey, you know South Jersey, and here yeah. I was in this kind of you know, powder blue linen shirt and you know fitted jeans and and white. And I I think they thought we were initially a couple looking for property and whatnot. So yeah. Um, and then when I told them that I was a, a scholar working on Baldwin, they got all defensive and started defending what was going to be left over, you know, always defending the leftovers, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that must have been powerful, though, just to just have been there. Um, you spoke about um, leaving home. Um, you said you ran away. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I wanted to ask you just, just about what it what it means to find home as a um, as a as a member of the displaced. I suppose your whole book is a conversation around confronting whiteness. I suppose um, how how do how do black people? I guess how do the displaced find their homes? in these spaces yeah you know there's a there's a chapter in the book entitled elsewhere and the chapter was initially wasn't going to be written because i was supposed to i was i had planned to go to istanbul i was going to retrace jimmy's steps through istanbul and you know i'm a television commentator in the united states and people were like have you lost your mind you're a critic of donald trump are you going to go to erdogan's istanbul have you lost (laughs) your mind and then there's this, this, you know, the State Department had issued a warning about travel to Istanbul, so I didn't go. So my editor was uh, in the States, was asking me, well, why don't you write something, go interview activists? And I said, well, no, we're always extracting things from them. Yeah. Can I write something for them? That's what I want to do. And elsewhere is this, this, this notion that we all must find our elsewhere so that we can replenish those spaces that allow us to laugh full belly laughs, those communities that allow us to rage, yeah. those spaces and relationships that when our knees buckle, they got our backs, right? So there's this moment in from another place, this gorgeous short film uh, of Baldwin in Istanbul where he's standing on the balcony and some, he looks and he looks back and he's puzzled. And then he breaks out into this extraordinary smile, full tooth smile, and and um, it's in it's and I was like, that's it, that's the kind of space where you can where I can be fully myself, where people aren't taken with 
you know, who you are or who you take yourself to be, but they will tell you the truth. So elsewhere is this, this space that allows us to be comfortable in our skin. And Jimmy found that in communities across the globe. He called himself a transatlantic commuter. He knew he was, he was, he was tethered to this place, to the United States, but mm-hmm. he found this space um, where um, people would, people around him allowed him to, no, let me put it differently. The people around him loved him enough so that he could feel at home. And I think that's what, that's what home really is, really. You know, I think when I think about it, you know, that space that affirms and confirms us in all of our complexity. And then when we enter it, we can exhale. And then when we leave it, you know, we're ready to tackle the world, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's... Yeah. So, so as black people then, or as people that are displaced, um, you've, in the United States, you've just, you're edging out of a presidency that... Um, wasn't the best. Um, <laughs> to put it lightly. <laughs> to put it lightly. Um, the idea of home for a lot of Americans was split straight down the middle. Mm. It doesn't feel safe, especially with COVID as well. Like nobody nobody knows whether they're coming or going or anything. And um, yeah. what, is the, what is the overall mood? Um, and since, like, since, um, since Trump's uh, loss... And um, where are you at with that? Well, the country's broken, man. It's so yeah. cl- it's so clear. America is broken. We're experiencing in some light the, the, the last days of the American empire. It's collapsing right in front of our faces. Um, there, there are those with with four years of evidence of mendacity, of incompetence of corruption and greed, close to 75 million Americans voted for him with that evidence. It gives you a sense of the state of the polity. Um, We're divided, rural, urban, Republican, Democrat, black, white. The divisions map onto disputes that go all the way back to the Civil War that were never resolved. Um, So... You know, we're on a nice edge as a country in the midst of a pandemic where liberty has become a synonym for selfishness. Right. I mean, that's, you know, today when we when we're talking right now, 340 plus thousand Americans are dead. Projecting out by the end of February, over half close to half a million Americans will be dead. And we need to be clear, the majority of them are poor. And black and brown. Poor. So, so it seems to me that, you know, as the late Stuart Hall put it, you know, uh, all conjunctural moments, all crises moments are conjunctural moments, right? There are moments of crises and possibility. So the collapse in this moment affords us an opportunity to imagine ourselves otherwise. The question is, will these folk have the courage to do so? That's the question. 
at some point I'm going to have a conversation with somebody around the state of politic in America because it's a lot, and um, <laughs> and I'm just and I'm, and I'm just and I'm just very like concerned for um, the space that we're holding right now. Yeah. But um, how can we kind of how will that status quo um, change? I. There's that question. And then there's also this next just point that's just come to my mind. And it's... I, I watch a lot of historical dramas. I watch a lot of periodicals. Periodicals? Periodic dramas and things. And I watch a lot of, you know, I, I, I tapping back into the Kennedys, tapping back into kind of like the 50s or 40s or whatever. Um, the booming 20s, all of this stuff. Mm. I look into all of that stuff and I can't help but feel this feeling of what it's like it's not a nostalgia it's not nostalgia because I don't long for it but it's a it's a it's a slight fear like I watched um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom mm-hmm. the other day and while I watched it and I could and I watched the success of like you know it, the the kind of um presence that Ma Rainey held and August Wilson was very big on doing those, creating those kind of plays that centered the black African American experience, as you well know. And um, I was watching, I was like, yeah, this is amazing to see, you know, she's, 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 she's commanding things in her own right. She's this person inside the studio. As soon as she steps out of the studio, she's just another black woman Mm. who is of no consequence. And um, and the black men in there, there was the whole scene around the lynching and about talking about lynching and whatnot. Mm. Whenever I watch these shows, I watch these things, I feel this overwhelming sadness. That's the word. It's, it's a sadness of if I was to go back in time and stand and and just bear witness to any of this, I would probably be killed. <laughs> In, in a way, you know, mm-hmm. or a, a, dem- a whole demographic of people that look like me would be put into a situation that really um, belittled their human rights. So how do we change the status quo? What do you what do you see for the future? Because sometimes with black people, we can only look to the future because the past was was so awful yeah Yeah. you know look i mean so there there, there's a certain kind of afro pessimist view about the world that makes it necessary almost um um, you can't you can't imagine the world being different so you have to go become an afro futurist in some ways you have to step outside of the world as it is because the world will always be you know anti-black in some ways um i don't hold that view I think that, you know, history is replete with examples of, of, the, of the horror you just laid out. But it's also replete with example of extraordinary courage in the face of those horrors. And what I do know is that when everyday ordinary people muster the energy and courage uh, to clap back, to organize, uh, to leave behind the bribe, um, and to imagine uh, what Jimmy would call a new Jerusalem, we could do that, right? I mean, it's no guarantee of success, but, you know, um, my faith is in hum- is in us, you know, 
Baldwin said in response to 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 the murder of uh, Dr. King that that and he collapsed in some ways didn't had to figure out how to pick himself back up uh, after King's assassination. He was like, "What does it mean that the country killed him?" You know, um, but he says, you know, he he learned something that human beings were at once miracles and disasters. That you had to protect yourself from the disasters that we've become, right? But understanding that we're we can be miracles too. So I say, so the answer to your question is, how do we change the status quo, right? Well, we change the status quo by organizing for a better world, right? By engaging in, in the hard work of politics, which means that we need to build solidarities with other groups who are marginalized. We need to put forward uh, values that reflect the dignity and standing of every human being, no matter the color of their skin, no matter who they love, no matter their gender, no matter their zip code, where they live, right? What they, what kind of work they do, right? We need to argue for that world. We need to fight for that world. It's not just going to happen. It's not just going to drop out of the sky. So, you know, it is the case. It is certainly the case that history is replete with evil. It is clear. Uh, it is replete with examples of folk who do evil. But it's also replete with examples of folk who muster the courage in the face of it. So all we have, unless we resign ourselves to a kind of pessimistic view that will then justify you taking the bribe. Hmm. So some people will say, well, the world can't change, so I might as well get mine. And, and some people have done it. No, 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 no. How do we change the status quo? We fight our asses off for mm -hmm. a better world. We risk everything for a better world. Uh, we bear witness until the day we die, until the day we take our last breath. See, this is the thing. The Baldwin I write about in Begin Again is the Baldwin that most people didn't want to hear. Baldwin, the late Baldwin is at the heart of Begin Again. And the late Baldwin is the Baldwin uh, who's still writing in the age of, of the Cosby show. He's still writing when black middle class folk are, are, are compromising with, uh, with Bill Clinton and they're beginning to gain entree into seats of power at, at, at different levels. And Baldwin is still bringing critique to bear. When the evidence of things not seen, he's like, what does it mean that these black babies have been murdered in Atlanta when all these black people hold power? And he's writing it in a moment that if you just fast forward and you think about that moment when Barack Obama calls these folk in Baltimore thugs and you have the picture of him calling them thugs at the same time that you have them in the streets, right, rioting, quote unquote, right, uh, in Baltimore at the, at, after the death, the murder of Freddie Gray. That contrast, that contradiction, Baldwin was thinking about it in 80, you know, in 87. When, when the evidence of things are not seen, evidence of things not seen was published. So the short answer, I haven't been giving you short answers, Alex, but the short answer is very clear. We risk everything. That's how we change the status quo. We don't, we don't, we, we, we don't become adjusted to injustice. We must remain maladjusted to it always and then fight for a better world. Amazing. What makes us... Hmm. What makes us more compassionate? Love. Mm. Love, it seems to me. And I don't mean sentimental love. Right? I mean something much more complex. Right? And all of the sense, Greek senses of love, that's what I mean. All of them. All of them. 
not not one of them, not agape, not just simply agape, not just simply Ophelia, Philia, mm-hmm. Eros, all of them matter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so who's the person you turn to in your in the heights of your vulnerable moments? I don't know. Sometimes it's my wife. Sometimes it's Cornell West. Sometimes, most of the time, it's my mama. I'm a mama's boy. <laughs> she, uh, she, she constitutes the center of gravity for me. So mm-hmm. when I feel like I'm losing my way, I talk to her, and she, she recalibrates everything. But there's a there's a kind of deep seated loneliness that's attached to this stuff, to this work, and so in those. In those desperate moments, oftentimes you find yourself alone because you want to protect the folks around you because they start worrying about you and you don't want them to worry. Yeah. Uh, So some final questions before we round up. We've been speaking for what feels like 10 minutes, but it's been been over an hour. Um, Name some of the books that you've gifted the most. Oh, wow. Some of the books that I've gifted the most. Well, obviously, The Fire Next Time. But, you know, the library edition of Baldwin's Collected Nonfiction, Library of America edition, is just great. Um, Toni Morrison's Beloved. Mm -hmm. As of late, I've been giving um, Imani Perry's Breathe, A Letter to My Sons. Um. Natasha Traithaway's memoir, it's just brilliant, um, titled Memorial Drive. Okay. Um, and, um, oh, Sarah Broom's The Yellow House, a memoir uh, about her time in New Orleans. Um, and then every now and then I'll throw some, uh, you know, some Chekhov or some Faulkner in there. <laughs> <laughs> um Final question: Do you have like a daily mantra or quote or routine that you can that kind of um, that shakes you, that gets you kind of either invigorated or calmed or, as you said, recalibrated? You know, it's not daily, but I say it to myself um, regularly, and that is: the world conspires to make you small. The question is: Will you be complicit? You know, the world conspires to make you small. And the question is whether or not you will be com- complicit, Eddie. Walk with giant steps. And then I usually put on Coltrane's giant steps. <laughs> amazing. Thank you so much, Eddie, for joining me today. It's been an amazing conversation. It's my pleasure, man. I appreciate you. And stay strong. Um, uh, you too. Thank you. Thank you so much to Eddie Esclau Jr. Thank you for joining me on the show. Thank you for listening and don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. Remember, you can find Begin Again under the link in the description and you can get the book from ukbookshops.org and make sure that you share, rate, review and subscribe. And again, this show was produced and edited by Ryan Nile over at Pure Creation Media. If you want to head over to his Instagram, it will be in my show notes. A huge thank you to him. And thank you to you just for listening. And make sure that you connect with me. Share anything that you want to hear, anything you want to 
wanna wanna know, <laughs> just drop me a message. Um, also, don't forget if you wanna become a member um, of my Patreon-like membership program, make sure you click the link in the description and you get a list of goodies. There are so many things coming next, well, this year, towards the end of the year. So I'm just trying to prime you guys for that stuff. So thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you all. Take care of yourselves. Take care of yourselves.